0: This Torah class is brought to you by TorahAnytime.com. So we want to welcome everybody, we want to welcome all our Torah Anytime viewers. So tonight we're obviously, we're learning to Leilunishmat, to Shmariah Yosef Chaim ben Yaakov Yisrael, as well as Le'ilu Nishmat, Esther Bela Basaev, Avram ben Chaim Yehuda, Yecheskel ben Avraham, and also to Chaim Pinchas ben Chaim Pinchas ben Yaakov Yitzchak. This is Rav Scheinberg. Uh, my Rashiva, his 10th yard site, was uh, yesterday. Uh, we're also learning Le Le to Liat Gittel Baschana and to Zachariah Shimon Ben Cyril. Okay, so let us get started. So I really want to go and to. Hi, 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 hi. Yeah. The name I sent you also, if you could? Yeah, I said that. Liat Gittel Baschana, right? Oh, sorry, I did not hear it. Yeah, that. no problem, no problem, yeah. So, um, the. Really, what I wanted to do is, I wanted to pick, like, start off where we left off. We were speaking last week on the idea the and and I really want to pick off on this and continue from this and I really the goal really the goal of what I would love to do is to accomplish six lessons that we could get from Rav Chaim's life and um and story so we'll see hopefully what we are able to get to but that really is the goal but I really want to focus on the Chacham to start off with and I feel this is a very very important um a very important concept because you have a lot of Gedolim stories, and you have a lot of these like um, uh, situations where people go and get brachos, and maybe they don't always see it come into fruition, they don't always see the results that they want to, so they start uh, coming up with, with different types of excuses, different types of answers of what is the reason that they weren't, uh, weren't answered. And <clears throat> I, I really want to focus on this aspect, the power of the munasaham. So just as a quick recap, a very, very... Short recap: What we spoke about last week was the idea of the munis is like you have a tzaddik, a, a gadol, that goes and gives you a bracha. You now, obviously, that has tremendous amount of weight, but that's not the only way that that blessing will come to fruition. There's another part of that equation, and that other part is the uh, the amount that you have that imuna, that belief, that faith that this tzaddik, what his blessings come to fruition and his uh, uh, whatever he says will be, uh, you know, will, will come, whatever the blessings is. So there's an aspect from the tzaddik side, from the righteous person side. And then there is an aspect from your side. So what are you going to do? Are you going to be like, oh, okay, very nice, and then let me continue with my life as is? Or are you going to change your mentality now that the righteous man said, oh, you're not going to be sick anymore? Or you're going to be very wealthy? Or whatever the blessing was, how do you take that to heart? Do you take it to heart, or do you go and do you, do you say, okay, that was a nice thing? But it, it, it doesn't really change your life in any sense. Now, the bigger aspect, and this is what we spoke about last week, that a big part of the way that the blessing gets fulfilled is the amount that you have belief in that topic, in, in the power of the blessing. So the more, and you think about it like this, I was actually thinking about it, and, you know, Akadish Baruch God gives us everything that we are, uh, you know, I, I shouldn't say we are worthy of, that uh, he, he decreed for us. And if we want to get more than was decreed, so we obviously have to do something on our part. And this is the way that tshuva works. So the way that tshuva works is that you have, God forbid, someone's having something bad happening to them. So now they go and they do tshuva, they repent. Now what happens is when they repent, or even if they don't repent, they take upon something else. They do something more. They they they, they improve themselves in any way, all of a sudden they're not the same person that was the decree earlier. So meaning that the decree was for, you know... Yankel to have X, Y, and Z. Now Yankel over here, he went and he did Juba or he did a bunch of extra good deeds, whatever it was. So now he is no longer the same person that the decree was uh, originally decreed for. He's now different. He changed. He grew. He became something else. So now the the decree not doesn't always stand, and sometimes there is additional blessing that comes to it. So when you go to a righteous person, and the righteous person goes and gives you a blessing, that in itself, <coughs> excuse me, is very powerful. But the the aspect that I I can't say is equally as powerful or more powerful because I don't know, but is very powerful as well, <coughs> is the aspect of now what are you going to do to change? So one aspect of that change is having a And There is a mitzvah. It's a, like it's a positive thing when you believe in tzaddikim. So this is the aspect that I want to continue with. Now there was once a person that was getting married, and he didn't have enough money to, you know, for a house, or an apartment. This is in, in Israel, this happened. You didn't have enough money for an apartment. So he goes over to Reb Chaim Kanievsky. And he goes and he says, you know, you know, can you give me a bracha, can you give me a blessing that I may be able to find an apartment, you know, be able to work on the money situation. So Reb Chaim goes to him and he says, what is the maximum amount of resources that you could pull together for an apartment? So the guy thinks for a second and he says, $40,000. So he says, "Okay." He says, "I want you to call the real estate agent, and I want you to tell them to look for you for an apartment for forty thousand dollars." So he goes over to the rabbi. Says, "Rabbi, you know, like with all due respect, forty thousand dollars is like I won't be able to buy, you know, like anything. I mean, this is what he was thinking. He couldn't even I say that? It was a good telling game. You know, he's like forty thousand dollars. You can't buy a shed. You can't buy a door to a shed in, uh, you know, in Bnei Brak. a high. You know, it's expensive over there. Uh, small apartments go for a lot of money, but." The Gadol told him something. So, oh okay, fine, you got to listen. So he calls up a real estate agent, and the, he goes, he says, I'm looking for an apartment. So he says, okay, what's your budget? What's your price range? So he takes a deep breath, and he's like, <clears throat> $40,000. So the real estate agent says, I'm sorry, what? Like, let me just compare. Imagine somebody's, uh, I'm assuming most people here live in Brooklyn, and that area, tri-state area. Imagine you ha- you're in real estate and be like, okay, I want to buy a house, a four-bedroom house, three bathrooms, you know, X amount of square footage, and I want to spend forty thousand dollars. Like forty thousand dollars is what causes what costs a parking lot. A part, well when parking lot, a parking spot in Brooklyn. Like you know, like for, what are you going to get with forty thousand dollars? So he calls up the real estate agent. And he says, "Yeah, I want to buy a house in Bnei Brak, a very expensive, you know, real estate market for forty thousand dollars." So the guy starts saying, he's "Like, are you like really like? Do you know the market? Like, we're who are like what? Words can't even come out." So he says, "Before you go and mumble jumble." He says, I went to Raphaim. Chaim told me this is what I should ask for, forty thousand dollars. So the guy says, Okay, you know, you don't argue with Raphaim. prime. can he ask? he said something, he said, fine, okay, fine, forty thousand dollars. <coughs> a week later, <clears throat> one week later, the this guy gets a you know, a phone call from the real estate agent. He says, You're not gonna believe this. He says that there is a guy <clears throat> who is sick, he's he's older, he's older on in his years, and he has kidney failure and he needs to buy a dialysis machine. The problem is he can't afford a dialysis machine. So he's willing, he called me up and he says this is what he's looking for. He says he wants somebody to come and buy him a dialysis machine, which costs $40,000. He has a four bedroom home in Nabok. He will let the person that buys him this machine live in two of those bedrooms, and he'll live in the other two. And then, after he passes away, he doesn't have any children, doesn't have any heirs. The person that does is he will inherit the entire apartment. So the guy's like, okay, you know, like, done. He takes his $40,000, he buys a dialysis machine, <clears throat> and he, and he ships it to the guy. They, they sign all the documents, all the paperwork. A week before the wedding, a week before the wedding, the guy unfortunately passes away. He passes away, and he inherits the entire apartment. It's a four-bedroom apartment in Bnei Brak. He inherits, and not only that, he takes the money from the. He had a dialysis machine that was rarely used. He takes that dialysis machine, and he was he was able to sell it for almost forty thousand dollars. He was able to get a four-bedroom apartment and forty thousand dollars of that he spent, you know, back. So he spent everything for for dollars for what? Because a gadol said that. Now imagine. Imagine we take that scenario, like how many people would have been like, okay, let me call a real estate agent and be like, there's no way. We wouldn't even begin to, to, to you know, think about that, that, that it even has a possibility. But somebody with a munas hachamim, somebody who has this faith in the, in the rabbis, has the ability to be like, you know what, if this is what the rabbi says, that this is what I'm going to do. And that in itself is the Yeshua, that in itself is the salvation, the fact that he went and he listened. Let me share with you another story. Ah, oh, Don't you love stories? Isn't it amazing? Yeah. Time flies when you say stories. So there was a couple that were expecting a baby. And they were very excited, very happy for the baby. However, and unfortunately, their happiness was short-lived. When they came in to do the ultrasound, the doctor told them that there is a problem over here. There is a lack of amniotic fluid. And now, and he says, because of that, the baby's lungs haven't developed. Now they're just two rocks in his chest, or her chest. The baby is not able to get any oxygen. The only way that he's getting oxygen now is because he has the umbilical cord. But once you take the baby out and the cord gets cut, the baby's going to die. And he says, furthermore, he says because there's no amniotic fluid over there, we can't even see the baby. And even if he is able to somehow live... He'll probably be deformed, missing limbs, having a, uh, you know difficulties with mobility. <coughs> and furthermore, he's being crushed in the womb. There's no attic fluid. So even if he does have his limbs, his arms and his legs will be permanently stay crushed. The baby basically won't survive, is what they were telling the doctors were telling this this couple. The pregnancy is gonna end one way or another. So, you know, like they were they were distraught, they got shot down. Like, how could you, you know, the all this great news that you're pregnant and you're going to have a baby and all of a sudden what happens is is that you know everything gets shot down they had to go to do a bunch of other tests and they scheduled all these other tests <clears throat> but before they went to this test they said listen the husband goes and says, let me at least go to Rabbi Chaim Kaniaski let me get a bracha so he calls his Rebbe, his rabbi and, and they, they decide they're going to go together. And they go together. On the way there, the rabbi tells him, he says, you know, if the rabbi, if Reb Chaim tells you to do something, you have to take it, you have to accept the body. So he's giving him, he was like preparing him for things that Reb Chaim might say. So he says, yeah, of course, whatever it is I can do to save the baby. <coughs> Excuse me. So they go to, to Reb Chaim Kenevsky and Rab Chaim Kenevsky listens to the whole story. He didn't give any bracha. He goes, and instead he goes and he says, don't listen to the doctor's. Everything is going to be okay. Don't go for any more tests and go daven, go pray. So the, you know, the boy went and, and looked at the rabbi and says, maybe is there something that I should take up on myself, anything in particular? So he says, just pray as much as you can. Just pray, just daven. Just as a side thing, I once asked Rav also that and he also gave me a similar answer. Just daven. <clears throat> the, um, and and Rav goes and says, everything is going to be okay. So he goes over to his wife when he comes back. Very happy news. He says, everything's going to be okay. And he goes over to his wife and tells her the great news. And the wife's like, you know, that's amazing. But like, w- w- go back to what you said about not doing any more tests. Like, w- what does that mean? Like, we have to do tests. And he's like, he's like, no, the Chaim says don't do any more tests. And from the, from the wife's side, her, her father was a doctor. Her entire family is in the medical field. She's like, what do you mean, don't do any that. Te- we have to do that. Like, you know, we have to do our effort. We have to do it, that. Yeah, and furthermore, she goes and she says, well, Reb Chaim he spoke to you for five minutes. Maybe he didn't understand. He's not really a doctor. You know, like, and, and she's going back and forth. And all of a sudden, she stopped herself. She stopped herself. She says, wait a minute. She's like, this is what the Gadol Ador says. She says, let me work on my emunas chachamim. Let me work on my the, the faith that I have for the on the sages. And she decided that she's going to listen, she's going to hold herself back, and not going to go to any more doctors. <clears throat> and she's the one who sang over this story. She says at 26 weeks, she was hospitalized. For a few weeks. For about six weeks. At 32 weeks, she went into labor. And as they prepared her for labor, they also prepared her for the, you know, for the birth and death of her child. They're like, there's no way that this baby is surviving. <clears throat> the surgery she goes was very quick. And after the surgery... After they took out the baby, there was this harrowing, this deafening, this, this very, very difficult, just silence. There's like no noise. And I looked at my husband, we looked at each other, in despair, like sort of we gave up. And all of a sudden, we heard it. There was a tiny little cry of a newborn. But the problem was, is, is we couldn't see that. There were so many doctors that were huddled around the baby that we couldn't even see what was going on. So my husband went, he jumped up with his phone, he went, and he took some pictures or he took a picture, and ran back to, to you know, together with his wife, and they started looking at the picture. And what did they see there? Lo and behold, it was a baby. It was a baby. And not only, they zoomed in, they pinched and then zoomed in, and they counted like 10 fingers on each, you know, on 10 fingers, 10 toes. They had everything. <clears throat> at six weeks old, he had to stay in the hospital. for the At six weeks old, he had his bris, and Rav Chaim Kanievsky was a sandik. When she was saying over the story, this baby was three years old, a regular toddler, Having, you know, fun and trouble the way that toddlers should do. We don't realize the power of a guddle. Where all medical doctors went and predicted the worst, and a guddle went against them. And that's what came to fruition. That's what ha- That's how the story ended. The story, and how many times, wow, look at that. There's a comment here that, that someone knows his family and they met the healthy baby I don't know how long ago this story was and that baby is my husband I don't know whatever it was <laughs> you know like uh, um, uh, what, you, but look at that isn't that a, that's beautiful that's amazing so we see over here the power of, of a gadol the power of a bracha <clears throat> you know Rav Chaim Kinesky writes in Orchus Yesher that there is different levels of Ruach HaKodesh. And at this point, I have to really give another shout-out to my brother-in-law, Rabbi Ephraim Kron, that I gave a shout-out for last week, because I spent another, uh, you know, well over an hour on the phone with him, when it was like 1 a.m. in the morning by him. And we went over, you know, different stories and different ideas, and and he really, you know, gave me a lot of information that I didn't know. So I want to give a a big shout-out to my brother-in-law, Rabbi Ephraim Kron, from Yerushalayim. And this is one of the things that he mentioned. There are seven levels of Ruach HaKodesh, that Rabbi Chaim says. The lowest level the lowest level is that if someone's going and get, and and giving you advice That you trust someone to give advice, Hashem puts in their mind the right things to say. So you go to a rabbi, you go to a mentor, you go to someone for advice, there's a little bit of Ruach HaKodesh that goes to that person, that that Baruch Hu, because you go and you're trusting that person and you need help, that person has a little bit of Siyat HaDishmai, a little bit of Ruach HaKodesh, so to speak, that puts in the right things to say. Obviously, the holier the person, so on and so forth. We're not going to get into all the details in it, but obviously that has a prerequisite. You can't just go to Father John and be like, okay, I'm asking you for advice. must be because I ask anybody for advice. Obviously, we're talking about somebody who that's that's uh, you know on a higher level. But in any case, we see over here the power of emunah the power of when a gadol says something you take it. Now I want to share with you something. What happens when someone doesn't take it? So there was a general in the army that was accused of a very very serious crime, and if he would be found guilty, he would be stripped of his rank. And not only that, he his, he would have a very, very long prison sentence. So he tried everything that he could. As a last resort, he decided he's going to Rabbi Chaim Kenevsky. He goes over to Rabbi Chaim Kenevsky. And Rab Chaim listens to his entire story, and he goes over to him, and he says, I promise you that if you do tshuva and become observant, you will be found completely innocent. So the general, you know, was not religious. He was shocked. He was like, he's like, he's like, the case is going to be starting very, very soon. He says, I can't change my lifestyle in just a few days. So Rav Chaim says, just start with keeping Shabbos. Just start with keeping Shabbos. So the general, having no other option, no other choice, he said, fine, I'm going to keep Shabbos. And he started keeping Shabbos. And uh, they, you know, they came into the to the first, uh, you know, court meeting. And they saw that, to the shock of everybody, is that the judge was listening carefully to both sides, but he was obviously very, very partial to the defendant. He was like everything, like he had some sort of like affinity towards this general, and everything they said is sort of like, like he listened to it, but sort of be dismissed. And, as the court case moved on, and they went to you know one court case, and then you know they took a break, and it was a few days later or a few weeks later I don't know how long it was, there was the next court case by the third court case, there was you know it seemed that this general is going to be let scot free like there was nothing that was sticking so this general started thinking, he says, you know, like, maybe I've been too uh, hasty. Maybe I ran too much and promising to change my lifestyle. I mean, obviously, look at it. Everything is going great. Like, did I really need to change my lifestyle? reminds me of that famous story where you have some guy who's going looking for a parking spot. He's late for a meeting. He's in Manhattan. He needs a parking spot. He can't get to any of the lots. It, there's, like, there's nothing there's on. So he goes over to the Shabbat and he says, Listen, God. He says, If you find me a parking spot, I promise I am going to start learning better. I'm going to start keeping Shabbos. I am going to start putting tefillin. Uh, he's listing off his things. So this is a huge business deal. And as he's listing off his things, there's a parking spot that opens right in front of him. And he slides in right into the parking spot. He's like, God, Listen. <clears throat> Don't worry about it, I took care of it on my own. As if all of a sudden, you know, he, everything was on his own. So the same thing with this guy. This guy, everything was going great. And he was like, you know what, <laughs> did I really need to start keeping Shabbos? So he decided that the following Shabbos, he's reneging on his promise and he's going back to not keeping Shabbos. He went and he stopped keeping Shabbos, that final Shabbos. And uh, to his dismay, he went and uh, there was a next court case the following week. He confidently entered in there thinking that's it. I am going to get, you know, exonerated. There's not going to be any issue, not a problem at all. To his shock, there was an entire change of attitude. The judge, the jury, everybody just switched like 180 degrees. They reviewed the case against him and found him guilty on all charges and they ended up sentencing him to the maximum punishment. Isn't that crazy? Isn't that like unbelievable? Like, but, you know what, like, that's like, okay, well, if Abraham told me to do something, of course I'd listen to it. But, let's take it a step down. How many times do we give ourselves our excuses? It wasn't the reason that I spoke Lashon and Hara, and that's why X, Y, and Z happened. It wasn't the reason that I was doing this and that's why I, we give ourselves all these excuses and say, like, you know what, it just so happened to me that I found that parking spot. And, you know, like, the, the, I guess you could say the the best excuse, the best example that I could give is we have someone who's not religious and says, "Oh, me and God, we have an understanding." Yeah, don't worry about it. We have an understanding. This guy also thought that he had an understanding with God. He's like, "Listen, I kept Shabbos; everything was going good. Why do I really need to keep Shabbos? It's not really Shabbos; it's just a coincidence. It just happened to be the same point in time." How many times do we say that <coughs> about ourselves? We start. You know, fixing ourselves. Life gets a little better. But then we start to be like, it's not because of that. And you start getting lax and you start, you know, falling in what you are, you know, wanted to grow in and have been growing in. How important it is that if we take upon ourselves something to make sure that we stick through it, we don't know the blessings that come out of it. You don't want to go and have this reminder. May we take this as a lesson. And this is lesson number one. Lesson number one is the lesson of Emun HaSacham. But a part two of that lesson, besides the fact that we listen to Chachaman, that when we take upon ourselves something, let's try to stick through it. Yes, we might fall. Yes, we might mess up. But that doesn't mean you shouldn't just get back up again and continue whatever it is that you are working on. <clears throat> you know, after the Patira, after the Stipler, which was Rabbi Chaim Kanevsky's father passed away, Reb Chaim Kanevsky started giving a sheer in Talmud Yerushalmi. But it's not like a regular shir. He gave like a very, very sophisticated, high-level shear to like these, you know, Talmide Chacham and these people that were really on a high, high level of learning. And he gave it throughout the entire year of mourning. The entire year, the entire year after his father passed away. But after the year, he, uh, he ended it. And they asked him, why do you end it? He's like, you know, this was an unbelievable share. So he says he didn't have the time. He didn't have the time to prepare so they asked him, he says, How much, you know, this is Reb Chaim Kanevsky who knows the Kola Tarakula like, by heart. They're like, How much time does it take you to prepare for this year? And he goes and he says, About five minutes. And let's just like pause that for a second. Talmud Yerushalmi is not the regular Gemara that most people learn. Most people learn learning Gemara, they're learning Talmud Bavli. Like when they finish that, they usually go to Talmud Yerushalmi. So this was like, uh, more difficult, more advanced learning that people do. And he would already give a more advanced, sophisticated level of share to a very high level of people in learning. And how long did it take him to prepare? Five minutes. But even that, he said, I don't have any time. But they were like, wait, but we don't understand. He says, you sit over here and you answer hundreds of letters a week to people. You sit much more than five minutes. People come and they ask you questions. You sit with them for hours that you have time for. And <coughs> so he goes and he says, he says, you know, for people that come and they write for me and they ask me questions, he says, I have an obligation, I have an achrayist to answer. He says, they're writing letters, they're asking something, so I have to answer. He says, and sometimes people go and they ask me a question that it's a very simple answer. Like sometimes he, he people ask him a question, he would say, oh, look at Mishnah Burasim and the, you know exactly where the location is. He would answer very briefly. But he would answer. Why is this? Because even though it's a simple question, maybe people need, you know, a little bit of chizik. They got a letter from the, you know, whatever it is, you know, like they, they needed to have a little bit of attention. So, Reb Chaim ask you know, he didn't have time. But he made time for certain things. And one of the most important things in his life, besides obviously learning non-stop, was Klal Yisrael. How much time, somebody who, who, whose machshev time so much goes and stops everything to go and listen to somebody go and, and complain about something or ask for a bracha. You know how many times I went to him when it wasn't the time when people are going into him? You know, that he wasn't, it wasn't a whole line of people. Like, I went to him while he was in the middle of his learning time, learning Seder. And he would go, he would stop, listen to it, obviously, it would be a short, you know, very quick, but whatever it was, he would stop what he's doing and give the bracha. And give the, you know, you know the bu'ah, the bracha, the whatever it was. The amount of avas Yisrael that Reb Chaim had was unbelievable. But I want to try to focus on this, on the chesed aspect, on how much he cared for other people. How much he... He had this desire to help other people, even though he had no time. Rav Shlomo kanievsky Rav Chaim's son, he said that he and his father would take walks. And he would take walks with all the boys, and he would speak to them in learning. And along the way, what happens if someone saw Rav Chaim kanievsky They would run, and they would stop, and they would ask questions, and they would speak to him in learning. And his son noticed that Rav Chaim answered differently to every person that they asked. And one time he commented, he explained to his son, he said there's various types of people. There's different types of people. Some people come to you and they want your agreement. Other people want an argument. Some people are genuinely looking for clarity. Some people just enjoy learning Torah. And they want to speak and learning. And Rav Chaim went on to list five different types of categories of people. And Rav Chaim goes and explains to his son, he says you have to learn to understand people. He says, you know, there, there is some person that needs this type of attention and there is some person, there's a different type of person that needs this type of attention. This is somebody that wasn't learning psychology and be like, okay, let's try to analyze. This is, this is a goggle that spent his entire free time and non-free time learning Torah. But yet, when somebody would come and ask him a question, he would look at that person, he would analyze that person and try to cater his response or whatever it is, to whatever that type of personality of that person. Obviously, as the years, as he got older and as uh, you know became very busy, he had to shorten it to get make more time for people. So he would, that's why he came up with the bu'a and the bracha b'atzacha. <coughs> but he had this, this, you know, this, this patience and understanding of what each person wants. There was once an American boy that came over to Rav Chaim with a long list of questions, a megillah of questions, and Rav Chaim goes holds his hand with warmth and love and he listens to all the boys' questions and he answers his questions. Every question. When the boy left, Rav Chaim goes and says in the name of the Chazanish, he says that every Bachar, every boy, needs to receive a certain dose of honor, respect, every single day. And he says really, this this self-esteem exercise is really not my job. It's a job of the Rosh Yeshiva, the head of the schools that these boys are learning. But sometimes they don't do the best jobs and they come to me And that's why I'm here to go and try to boost their self esteem. And this is where he went, and he sat with a boy, which asked a whole list of questions. And he went and he said every single, and every single answer. Now, if you realize how much learning he had to do, just the Gemara, just the Gemara was eight pages of Gemara. People do dafiomi, takes him about an hour a day. That's one page. He would do eight pages of Gemara, and that's just bavli. That's not talking about the Yashami, the Tesefta, the Safri, the, the Zohar. That's not even close. Matt, you have this whole long, long list, and this is something that I found fascinating, because what happens if I have a lot to prepare? And somebody goes and wants to speak to me. And I'm like, ah, I can't. I have so much to do. I have like so much. I, I can't. You know, like, I had possibly no time. I try to make time. I would, have, you know, go back and forth on it. But what I hear, like, Rabbi Chaim had the longest list of, pos- of, of like, requirements. He was the busiest person alive. Like, he slept two and a half hours a night. He's busier than the president of the United States of America. He's busier than the college student cramming in for their college exam the next day the final, the, the, the exam that's going to pass them for their boards, and they study nonstop, and they're on Adderall, and five-hour energy, and Red Bull, and everything else combined, and possibly other things that maybe are more illegal. <coughs> Rab Chaim was busier than all of them. <clears throat> Yet when somebody came over to him, he stopped, and he gave them that attention. He gave them that bracha. How many times are we rushing, and somebody goes and asks you for something, and all you want to do is be like, I'm sorry, I have no time now, call me back later. Or your child comes into you and be like, I, you know, I, I'm sorry, Abba has to do, you know, like Abba has to run again. Like, no. Like a lesson that we can learn from this is that when you have an opportunity to do chesed, stop for a second. Just stop for one second. And you might not be able to do it the level that Reb Chaim did it, but at least give the person in front of you at least a second. Just like, a, like, take a deep breath and instead of going like, <gasps> I, can't, I can't, you know, like the everybody, I just can't, stop. Stop. Give them at least a second. A second you can give. Take a deep breath and listen to them for a second. Okay, maybe a second is too small. Maybe do five seconds. But whatever it is, a few seconds, look at the difference that it's going to be. First of all, your, your entire way of presenting yourself is going to. the second that you're, you know, you're very agitated, you can't hear. But you be like, you know what, I'll give this guy a minute, two minutes, five seconds, whatever it is that you decide. All of a sudden, you know, you're more relaxed. You're able to concentrate. You're able to listen to that person. You're able to help that person. You know, when the stipler of Chaim's father, before he was nifter, he had some health issues and he decided towards the end of his life that he doesn't want doc- he doesn't want doctors to come to his house. He doesn't want doctors to come to his house. So Rav Shach, another gadol, went over and, you know, tried to go and say, like, let's try to get doctors to come. We can't lose the stipler. We got to make sure that he's sticking around as long as possible. So... He, um, he goes over, the, so he, at this point in time, Rav Chaim Kenievsky's sister was living with, um, with the stipler and taking care of him. And I believe, if I'm not mistaken, that she was, uh, she was an almana. She did, you know, she wasn't married at this point. So, um, she goes over, you know, they go over to the sister and says, maybe you can go and convince your father to go and see doctors. And uh, she went and she weighed both possibilities. And she said, she decided, I'm, st- I'm sticking to whatever my father decided. Whatever my father's decided, that's what I'm, I'm respecting. So <coughs> they, didn't, they still tried to go and push it. They went to Rab Chaim. They said to Rab Chaim, go speak to your father. Make sure, let him go see the doctors. Let him go and try to, for whatever the cheshbon was that the stipular had, we're not going to get into it, but he had a cheshbon for what he was doing. But he went over to Rab Chaim and said, go speak to your father. And Rav Chaim said, listen, he says, my sister is taking care of my father. He says, my sister's in charge. I'm not in t- If my sister said that there is no, there, she's signing with her father, then I'm signing with my sister, who's signing with her father. He would not go. Why? Because he had a sensitivity to his sister. His sister is spending there for years taking care of her father. I'm going to go and I'm going to start telling her what to do. He says, she, this, is her, this is what she's doing. She has a responsibility. This is what she took upon herself. She is now the one in charge. And that, to show you the sensitivity... When the stipler was Nifter, Rav Chaim's inheritance was the stipler's farim. At that point, the stipler wrote a lot of farim, and he didn't sell the farim in stores. It was only sold in his house. So if somebody wanted to buy a safer, they had to go to the stipler's house and buy, and, and physically go there and buy the safer. So he gave his inheritance to Rav Chaim. for this, would have been a tremendous amount of financial, you know, like, I guess, ease. Like here he would, you know, he would have just Parnosa coming and people come buying in this farm. But what happened was, is that his sister was taking care of Rav I'm sorry, the stipler. And when his father passed away, he decided, he says, I'm not taking that my inheritance. I'm leaving it with my sister, who was living at that point in the stipler, his father's house. And they went over to Rav Steinman, another gadol, and they said, why is the stipler doing this? And the Rav Shtayman went and responded that, uh, um, you know, his sister was an almana at this time. She didn't, she didn't have, a, you know, her husband. She was living alone. And at this point, you know, until now, she was taking care of her father. So she always had guests. She always had visitors coming to see the, the, the rav, the stipler. She was always busy. Now that her father passed away, what is she going to do? She's not going to be busy anymore. Now everybody's going to go to Reb Chaim to go and buy this farm. So Reb Chaim this: decided out of the sensitivity to his sister that he's not taking his inheritance. Now people go and they fight over their inheritance and they go and they go to court with their inheritance. The stipend says, I am not doing... Why? Out of the sensitivity to my sister. My sister is going to feel upset and sad. She's going to be bored. Maybe she's not going to have people. Now there is no... She's going to have visitors. She's going to have to have visitors. People need to go and buy this farm, so people are going to go and visit her. He because of that, he didn't want to take his inheritance. Look at the sensitivity that Rav Chaim had. This was his income. This was going to be his income, but he gave it all up. You know, Rav Chaim used to make <coughs> Rav Chaim used to make a sim every hour Pesach, and um, a sim an entire you know like shot like entire everything. <laughs> so. <coughs> excuse me, so he, <coughs> one, one particular year, there was an orphan that came and he was a bachar and he would have had to fast Erev Pesach, but he said, I didn't finish any of the, any mesech to make a sim So Reb Chaim goes to this orphan, to this yasam, he says, don't worry about it. He says, you'll join me in my sim that I make Erev Pesach. Now, it's Erev Pesach there is hundreds of people that come to Reb Chaim Siem. I mean, like, the, there is like, Reb Chaim, you know, makes, you know, the Siyem, and there's, there's a, you know, wine that's made of, there's a, you know, like a brach on the wine. That wine is then taken and split into a bunch of different wines, and each bottle of wine, it gets sold or gets given, and if you give a certain amount of donation. People, I go crazy over the Siyem. I remember one year, I was able to get a, a bottle of wine, that part of that wine was spilled, and I remember I was taking that wine, and every, probably for a year, I would spill a little bit in my Kiddush cup. And I would make Kiddush on the part of the wine that Rabbi Chaim Ganevsky went and uh, made, a, um, made a Siam on. If I would have known, if I would have, not if I would have known, if I would have thought properly, I probably wouldn't have opened that bottle. I probably would have just kept it closed and I just, I don't know, I kept it for who knows what, like never open it. But anyways, I opened it, I drank it. <laughs> it was part of the Kiddush for about a year. But in any case, so there's hundreds of people that are coming to the Siam. This is the, the, the famous Siam. And Rav Chaim is about to start to see him. Gadol adar, hundreds of people are waiting, but he's not starting. He's looking in the crowd. What is he looking for? He's looking for that orphan. Here you have a gadol adar. So many things that you could say. But like, oh, what happened? He was looking for an orphan that he and he didn't start to see him until he found that orphan and he brought him up close and until that only then did he start making the see him. You know the Chazal tell us that when Eli was you know, Eli was cursed that all his children will die young. (coughs) And the Gemara in Rosh Hashanah page 18b goes and says that Rabbah and Abayah, they came from the descendants from Eli, And they were also subject to the curse to die young. Die like, you know, 18 years old, like very young. But however, Rabbah, Rabbah, I'm sorry, he was, uh, because he was constantly learning Torah, he lived until 40 years old. But the koach of the Torah, he was able to live longer than and, and, and partially avoid that curse. Abaya, on the other hand, he was learning Torah, but he was also involved in acts of kindness, in acts of chesed. And he lived for 60 years old. So you had somebody, you had, you had Rabbah who, who learned, and because of the koach of Torah, he lived for 40 years old. But you had Abaya, who had both Torah and chesed, he lived until he was 60 years old. When somebody has Torah and chesed, his Torah is on a higher level. Is on a higher level. Now I'm not saying that Rabbah didn't have you know, chesed. He was a gadol adar. I'm sure he had chesed. But, but there's something about abai I guess, that he went out of his way to do extra chesed. <clears throat> you know, if somebody goes and learns and learns and learns a lot, but he doesn't have the chesed, his Torah is not worth the amount. That's not, it's not machshev in Shemayim. <clears throat> we tend to forget sometimes how important chesed is. How sometimes we go and act so rudely and, and lack, I don't want to give examples because it's not nice, but I'm saying like we run to go learn and in the course of our running to learn we hurt other people. We go and we try to go and, and gain but we don't realize that sometimes we lose more than we gain. And when you think about chesed, there's a very famous saying the chesed starts at home. You know, if Chaim Vital goes and says that when a person gets up to Shemayim and <clears throat> they get up over there, you can have a lot of Torah, you, can have, you know, Shemayim, heaven is not going to be impressed with your chesed, with your, with your um, you know, if let's say you did everything, you did chesed, you did Torah, says Reb Chaim they're not going to be impressed in Shemayim with your chesed if you didn't do chesed at home. If you went and you forgot your own family and only then you did chesed, then really what you're doing is you're, maybe you're running for kavod. Maybe you're running for other things. Chesed starts at home. It's very easy to do chesed, out, to be nice outside the house. But when the doors close and you start screaming and yelling and have anger issues, that's who you really are. You know, When you think about chesed, chesed can be either very easy or very hard. If you go up and you wake up tomorrow morning and you say, you know what, I'm going to do one chesed today. That's all I'm at. One chesed I'm doing. So that means that now you have a mission. Today's mission is going to do do one chesed. So the next opportunity that a chesed comes, you're going to jump in it because you're like you want to just like check off that thing that you have to do chesed. Have to add it to that app that the idea that we discussed a while back. Do one chesed a day. You know if you do if you go and you try to do one chesed a day, then you're going to look for it. If you're going to look for it, it's going to be easier. You're going to want somebody's going to collecting charity. Be like wait a minute, this is chesed stuck. Let me go and do this. So you have a desire to do it. But if you're not looking for it, if it's not something that you want to do, if it's not something that you're aspiring to do, so when it comes your way, you're going gonna to look at it as something like, oh, I'm not interested. But if you strive to do it, if you desire to do it, all of a sudden it becomes easier. So some people say, oh, you know what, you know, I have a hard time doing chasset. Yeah, if you change your mindset... If you go and you decide, you know what, I want to do one chesed. All of a sudden it's going to be easier because you're going to try to find something. Imagine you can't go to sleep until you do one chesed. You're going to have to find it. You're going to, so you're going to be looking for the entire day. You're going to jump on every opportunity that it comes to with you. <clears throat> Such an important aspect. You know, when we want to do something, you want to make, you tell yourself in the beginning of the day, I'm going to make one good bracha today. Like, okay, fine. I make plenty of brachas every day. And I make it. But like, just one bracha, I'm going to say it with like super duper kavana. Like I'm going to concentrate. I'm going to be like a Rebbe, lighting Hanukkah candles. You know, I'm going to go over there and I'm going to say the bracha with every single letter, every single syllable emphasized the right way. I'm going to have the right thought. Just one bracha a day. That's it. Just one. You make... At least, you should be making at least 100 brachas a day. But just one bracha. Think about it. Just one bracha I'm going to make with concentration. Just think about that aspect. So, okay, fine. So maybe it'll be your first one. Maybe. It'll, but, but when we think... Of, another idea for the app. One bracha a day. We have to write this now. Okay. But in any case, the, the idea where you can decide if something's going to be difficult for you or something's going to be easier for you, it's all in the state of mind. You know, and and take this a step further. I want to speak a little bit about Rav and his wife, the Shalom Bayis. So, the um, this was uh, there was a whole like q- question and answer that was asked to the daughter of Rav and she answered these uh, you know these questions, and I plugged in a bunch of different stories that I found together with this, but. Rab Chaim, he would go and he would make sure he would give so much honor to his wife that when he came home for lunch to eat the meal from, you know, when he was between his learning, he uh, his wife, you know, set him up the meal, but he would never start his meal without her. If she was busy caring for something else, caring for others, somebody came to the door and she was busy with something, he had his shtender, he went and he sat and he learned until she was ready to eat and only then did he start eating. He didn't wait. And, you know, growing up, this, you know, on the Shabbos table, this is when, you know, my mother always told us, and we were never allowed to start a course until my father ate. We couldn't. We could, and we knew growing up, and I keep on trying to remem- remember to teach this to my children, but, you know, it tends to forget about it. But it's su- such a, like, this is what I was imbued with that we would never start a course until my father took the first bite. We had to wait. We we couldn't, it was never like, my mother had to tell us a few times, obviously we're kids and we tend to forget it, you know, and sometimes, eventually it came to the point where my mother just gave us a look and we knew, don't touch the fork, you know, put it down until my father starts and then we start, whether it was a fish, whether it was a soup, whether it was a chicken, nobody started their meal until my father took the first bite. I'm, you know, now I'm thinking about it. Now when we go visit, you know, my parents, I have to think about it. I, I'm pretty sure I still do it, but I don't know. I have to think about it. Like now, before it was so ingrained in me that I didn't even think about it. Like that is the level that when we strive to do something, you want to honor your spouse, it should come to a point when you're not even thinking about it. That's how it comes. Rab Chaim, he sat with his wife, he wouldn't even start the meal unless she did. It happens the same thing with the afternoon rest. You know, the, you know in Israel, <clears throat> they, they, you know, people take you know, naps in the afternoon, especially if you're up late, you're early. You know, so you take a small nap in the afternoon. Rab would never take a nap, take an afternoon rest, unless she also laid down. If she laid down, then fine, he would lay down. Uh, again, how many times did he actually lay down? Uh, you know, I don't know. <laughs> he literally lived on two and a half hours of sleep a night. But in any case, he wouldn't, he wouldn't go to sleep unless she was sleeping. One, uh, you know, every year in the summer, they would, uh, in the Bain between the, you know, the semesters, I guess if you could call it in the yeshiva, him and his wife would travel together to Tzfas. And Rav Chaim would say he's doing it for his wife, so she could have a vacation, because she was also always very busy with the people, the community. And his wife says she's doing it for Rav Chaim, so that he would have a vacation for the people and the community. And one one year, uh, he came back, they came back from there, his vacation. Again, his vacation wasn't that he was sitting on the beach, you know, sipping a tequila or sipping a pina colada, you know, watching the waves. And on his vacation, he also sat and learned, you know, 21 and a half hours a day or, you know, like that, that's what he did on his vacation, you know, and, and, and regular time. But... They go and they ask him, so, you know, how was your vacation? I think one of the, the children asked him, how was the vacation? He was like, ah, oh, it was unbelievable. I was able to write so many chidushim, so much different, you know, like for his farm. he was. I was able to write so much. So um, he goes and they go to him and says, you know, if you were able to accomplish so much, and if I'm, if I'm not mistaken, I believe one year he was able to finish a whole safer on his vacation. Like, what do people do on their vacation? Oh, I can't do the Dafyomi because I gotta go see the, the rainforest. You know, I, can't, I gotta, gotta go do the Jeep tours. You know, I don't have time for that. Rav Chaim on his vacation would finish writing a safer, like, you know, like a <laughs> different level, right? So the children go to him. It's so like, so if you were accomplishing so much, why don't you spend another week in class? So Rav dismissed Esau's Gideon. He goes and he goes and he says, The only true consideration is the will of HaKadosh Baruch Hu. What Hashem wants for me, says Rav is to be here in Bnei Brak and make myself available to His beloved children by sharing their joys and sorrows and answering their questions. And he goes and he says, My own needs are secondary to that. His focus was what was Kalal Yisrael even though he would've been able to write more svarim, he would be able to write more but his focus was for Yisrael. Chesed was such a big aspect in his life his daughter says that one time his mother her mother uh, fell ill became sick and she remained in his bed and you know she remained in bed so couldn't do anything but he, what he did was is that he took his shtender, and instead of learning in his regular place he went and he sat next to the bed His his wife when she was sick and laying in bed, and that's where he went and he learned next to his wife in case she needed anything. So he sat next to his wife the entire time, sitting and learning in case she would need something. Furthermore, the you know you think of these stories, you know, like this is the Godol Adar who had zero time. You know, you think like I'm so busy. You know, like. I did not want to say Biden because no one knows where Biden is. Biden doesn't know where Biden is. But, like, how many times does Trump and whatever his wife's name, it's some Melania, Melania, you know, Malaria, whatever her name is, you know, like, how many times did they go and they sit together and, uh, you know, eat the meal together? You know, like, and again, I'm not bashing Trump. He was great for Israel. You know, like, if he runs again, you know, oh, maybe it will be good. Who knows? Everything's minish by him anyways. But, when you think about the most busiest person, can you imagine? Can you imagine that the most, the busiest person, President of the United States of America, excluding this, this year, he's checked out already, but generally, right? The, the President of the United States of America, no time, zero time, always running from like place to place, sits with his wife when she's sick. God, like, you know, like it's mind blowing. It's mind blowing with somebody who has no time what he has time for. Furthermore, the daughter goes and says that whenever her mother would leave outside of Nebrak, her father <coughs> asked his wife, he said, the, the, the Rav Chaim asked the Rebetzin, he says, tell me when you're leaving. And when she says, you know, I'm leaving, he would go and he would escort her outside the house, for amas, about eight feet, he would walk her out, and he would remain in place until the car that she was traveling with vanished in sight. He waited until she left. Imagine that. Imagine the next time that your spouse leaves to work, you go and you stand on the porch, and you do like a little queen wave, you know, like until, until you see the car go by. Like, First of all, you know, the spouse can be like, is everything okay? Like, what's going on? You're like, okay, what'd you do? How much did you spend? Like, you know, like, no, for Rabbi ha- this was a normal situation. This is how much he respected his wife. His, his, his wife knitted a sweater for, for Rav Chaim. The rabbitson knitted a sweater. And he wore it for many years. And whenever it wore out, he asked his children to fix it. Because he goes over to his children says, the sweater which ima, which mommy, which mom, whatever mother, whatever you want to say, knit for me, warms me like none other. He says, this is the only sweater. He went and he cared so much about what his wife, did. knit one sweater, wore it all the time. <coughs> there was once a woman that asked to be allowed in the merit in preparing food for Rubhaim Kaneevsky. She's like <laughs> and Reb Chaim says, No, I'm sorry. I only like the food that's cooked by my wife. And like first of all, the mother and this is the daughter saying says my mother was very pleased by this. But Reb Chaim, food like you know how how he ate? He would look at the food so he know which bracha he would eat he would have to make. But by the time he finished, he went back to learning, he goes over to people sitting there and he says, what did I eat? What bracha chreina do I need to make? Like his mind was always in learning. You know, the stories that we said last week where he had, you know, like a, a gadol drinking shmata water and thought that's what soup is. You know, Gadalim don't care about food. So what does Rab Chaim No, I like the way that you, your mother... What, what would He was giving honor and respect to his wife. So the next time that your wife or spouse burns your food, you say, mmm, so delicious. I love it when it's so crunchy and I can taste the coals. Ah, you know, it's like delicious. One time, his grandson, one of his grandchildren got engaged and they brought the kala to a Shabasuda by Rav Chaim's house. So when they came in, Rav Chaim started singing, singing the songs for Chas and Kala. And then <clears throat> a few minutes go by and he starts singing the song again. So they go, one of his children goes to him and says, you know, Saba, you know, you, you sang this song already, why, why are you singing it again? So Rabbi Chaim goes and he says, he says uh, you know, the first time I sang it, Safta wasn't here. He says, now she came back, she was in the kitchen, I want her to enjoy also the singing of the song. So I sang it again for Safta, for grandma, for and for, for Konevsky. You know, it's very easy to be nice to people outside your house. Where it tells you about the person that you're nice to the people inside your house. You know, you're nice to your spouse. You're nice to your children. Chesed begins at home. You know, when uh, they asked his one of his children, Rabbi Rami Shayahu Kanievsky, they asked him, they said, isn't it hard that your father is so like, removed from... Like, how do you have a father that's a good old daughter? Like, you know, for the children. You know, okay, we see, like, obviously he had a good relationship with his wife, a uh, better relationship than anybody could ever dream of. But, you know, like the children, like he was learning nonstop, seeing people like, you know, how, how does, how is it having such a, you know, father? So he goes, you know, the son goes and says, you know, I, you're making a mistake. You know, our father never neglected us. He said, you know, he always played also games with us. I mean, he played different games with us. He didn't play catch, you know, so to speak. But <coughs> he says, he goes and says, you know, want to know what our favorite game was as growing up? is that our father would come to us and he would ask us to mention any name of any rav, any gadol. It could be a tana, an Amorah, someone from the Mishnah, someone from the Gemara, a Rishon or an Achrol, any gadol, and he would tell us a story about that gadol. Anyone, you pick the most obscure gadol, and, and the game was that you have to try to get Rav Chaim to not be able to say a story about that person if he's able to say a story he says a story about it and we enjoy but if he doesn't then we win and he goes over and he says we never won once but we also won every single time because we love the stories <laughs> it was great stories I apparently was a great storyteller and furthermore there was another game that he played with his children and the game was that it was a sefer that came out that was called Mechol uh, Amarm Ve'ahapiskamen it's an, an encyclopedic work that has thousands upon thousands of Mamari of of like, Chazal of like statements of Chazal and they're organized alphabetically, and each and they're and they're noted where they're located in you know Gemara, Zohar, Chumash, Nach, anywhere, whatever it was uh, was located. The game was is that we would go through this encyclopedic work, and we would find a statement that no one ever heard of, and we would ask Abba, we would ask the Rav Chaim Kinevsky where it's located, and the game was to try to get him to not be able to find a location. And this is by heart, by the way. And he didn't go and sit and review that, you know, encyclopedic work. And he says that also we never won once, <laughs> either. Rav Chaim was any nice statement. Rav Chaim was able to pinpoint exactly where it was located in, in Gemara, in Nach, in Chumah, in, in Bavli, or Shami, Zayyar, Sefra, Sifri, any of the Midrashen, anywhere. And he, you know, the son goes says, you know, you know, he was very devoted to us. He would spend time with us. He would learn with us. <clears throat> and furthermore even the grandchildren he would spend time with and he would if, if he would ever have to travel he always used to go to, to Brisson to be the son, and he would, always, he would travel for it and if he would travel to some sort of town that he had a grandson that was learning on the way or in a, nearby he would go out of his way to go and stop by the yeshiva to visit his grandson to is his grandson. And he would go and he would sit and he would talk to the grandson and he would ask the rabbi to prepare a little pekala a little, you know, some food so that he could bring to the grandson. And he would go and say, what are you studying? What are you learning here? You know, you know, and he would sit and, and spend time with his grandchildren. Spend time with his children. This is somebody with, again, when was the last time that Trump, you know, played golf with his son, Oh, I forgot his son's name. I don't know. Whatever it was. Like, if you think about it, like someone who's so busy, like you tend not to have time. But here, you have a Gadol dar that somehow accomplished so much of learning, yet he had time for everybody that came to his door. He had time for his children. He had time for his wife. He had time for everybody. It's sort of like, his time sort of like expanded for it. Like, how he have so much time? And I believe one reason, there are many reasons, I can't say, is that he was looking for this time, possibly again. This is my own, my own, uh, you know, thought on it. That he was looking, and when you're looking for something, you find it. He wanted to spend time. When you want to do something, you find the time to do it. You have the ability to do it. What an amazing lesson that we could learn. Like we say, the most common excuse that we give ourselves, our rabbis, our mentors, our spouses. We don't have time. I wish I could start, you know, learning and teaching the public and, you know, I wish that I could support Orphan. I wish that I could spend time with the tr- I have no time. I have no time. There's nothing to do time. But if you want it, you'll find the time. So I believe a takeaway is similar to the takeaway we said before, but want to spend time with your spouse. Want to spend time with your kids. Want to spend time with your grandkids. And if you do want that, you'll find time you know Rav Dov Yafa said that Rav Chaim's father he believes that a big part of Rav Chaim's like success was of kibbud avaim and uh, uh, he goes and he says you know Rav Chaim's father the stipler, told him don't waste time time is life and he would really not waste time he would you know like nothing he would his entire his father told he was so into kibbud i want to tell you a uh, Amazing story. Amazing, amazing story. So, Rav Yaakov Yisrael Kanaevsky, which is the stipler, um, he was sitting and, you know, learning, and all of a sudden, his uh, daughter, Rebetzin Barzam came in, and she said, you know, Abba Chaim, Rav Chaim, is suffering from terrible back pains, which give him no peace. Perhaps, maybe Abba, maybe the father has an idea that maybe could help. Now, the stipler was known for his deep understanding of human anatomy. He knew the human body very well. He was able to to advise a lot of medical procedures and things like that. And he got this knowledge from intense study of halakha. And so he realized that, you know, Rav Chaim is not feeling well. So he quickly got up and ran over to the house of his son, Rav Chaim. And Rav Chaim sees his father comes in. He's so surprised. So he's about to stand up in respect for his father. And his father says, no, 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 don't stand up. Don't stand up. And he, you know, he's, he's the is worried that it's going to add more to the pain. The stipler quickly runs, and he goes to Reb Chaim and says, quickly lie down. Rafhaim Chaim looking at him, is like, yep. he lies down. He lies down, and, you know, Rev Stipler goes and starts massaging his back. And he's aligning the vertebrae, he's, he's massaging the muscles, he's focusing on the pressure points. When he's finished, he goes to Rafhaim Chaim, and he says, make sure that you lie on your back with your knees bent for three hours. And then you turn to your side and straighten your legs for another three hours. Then the stipler goes to his son and says, And he returns to his studies. A few hours go by and again, his daughter, Rebbe Zanbarazim, comes in to, to the stipler and <clears throat> he goes and um, you know the stipler is thinking that she came in to say that Rav Chaim is feeling better and everything is okay. But to his surprise, she goes over to him and she says, You know, Perhaps Abba was too busy, but Rav Chaim is still waiting in unbearable pain. Maybe can Abba, can the stipler come in and visit and see, maybe he can help. So the stipler says, what do you mean? He says, right after you left, I ran over to Rav Chaim, gave him a massage, gave him instructions exactly to ease the pain. And, you know, all of a sudden they realized that they were both talking about two different Rav Chaims. The stipler thought, that she was talking about her brother, which was her son. But really, what she was talking was about a different Rav Chaim, her son-in-law, Rav Chaim Kluft. So, this time gets up, it runs back to Rav Chaim Kluft. But now, if you think about it, you have one Rav Chaim sitting in pain and agony for hours. Another Rav Chaim got an unnecessary massage (laughs) and without, you know, you know, like, you know, like any requests, and not only that, he didn't even correct his father. So, Rav, Cha- Rav, uh, Rebbe, uh, Rav Chaim went to his daughter's son-in-law to go and now help the right Rav Chaim. And meanwhile, his daughter, the Rebetzin, now went to Rav Chaim Kanievsky to apologize for the mix-up. So, she goes into Rav Chaim Kanievsky's, which was, this was already a few hours after, um, you know, after after the stipler came in. And uh, she goes and she notices that Rafhaim Konevsky is sitting, is laying down in the exact position that his father told him to. And she's like, What are you doing? She's like, You're, you know, Rafheim was completely healthy. He had no back pain. He had no issues. But his father came and told him, Sit on your back, lie with your feet up over here, bend, do this and do that. He didn't ask any questions, didn't correct his father. Father said to do this, I'm going to do this. And he went, and he, exactly what the father, hours. this Reb Chaim no time for nothing. Reb Chaim came and said, lay on your back. He laid on his back. The stipler, I'm sorry. The stifle came to Reb Chaim and said, lay on your back. He laid on his back. And he laid motionless. This is somebody who didn't waste a second. He laid motionless because what, this is what his father instructed him to do. You know why? Because the aspect of keep it out of the aim for Reb Chaim, it was a fact. It was independent of whether the instructions made sense or not. His father asked him to do something, so he's going to do it, whether he understands it or not. That's his level of Kivur Avayim. You know, Rav Chaim would answer letters, hundreds of letters a week. The way that he would answer it, he would prioritize. Kohanim would be answered first. Leviim would be answered second. The third group would be people that were named Yaakov Yisrael, because that was his father's name, and he saw it as kibbutz of, to respond to people that were named after his father. And Rambam goes and says, you know, that if we pay attention, we will see clearly that people who don't honor their parents suffer in this world. And he gives a bunch of examples, which we don't have time to get into. Which I just realized now how much I'm over. Uh, but he he did not, uh, you know, you know, like for him, whatever his father says, that's what he did. Rav Chaim, you know, said that the Chazanish became the Chazanish because of his fulfillment of Kivot Now Rav Steinman added to that, of course, you know, to become a Gadol Adar, it's not just, you know, You obviously have to toil very much, but there was a Tzchus a, a that came along with it, and that was Kivot HaVeim. You know, one of the hardest mitzvahs are, is Kivot HaVeim. It's a difficult mitzvah. It's very difficult. And we, many of us think, okay, you know what, it's so hard, it's so difficult. So a lesson that we can take away is that, yeah, maybe you won't be able to do exactly to the level that Rabbi Chaim did. But something you can take out of it. Something you could. Maybe what you do is something very simple. Next time that your parent calls, you answer. Answer. Next time that your parent walks in the door, you stand up. Take something simple that you could work on. aim. <coughs> and Now I have to think. Okay, so here's the question. I didn't realize how late it is. So the question is, is that if we're going to do another class on our Chaim, or I should do a few more minutes and then close it off. So we'll take a poll. The people that came to the Zoom are the ones that are going to be the one to uh, you know, decide. These are the two options. Do another class about our Chaim, because I, I, you know, I, I didn't realize how late it was, or to do a few more minutes and then figure out something else for next week. <laughs> okay <laughs> longer is not okay another class looks like what it's coming in okay so we'll neutral keep going okay. I'll tell you why I stopped keep going I'll tell you why I stopped I stopped, I stopped uh, um, we're going to do B'zad Hashem another class I see that's where the consensus is <coughs> you know I've had people you know ask me how come I don't look at the Torah anytime camera as much and you know I told you know I told them that it I speak to people that are alive. People that come to the share, that's what I speak to. So you might not notice that, but I'm looking really at all the face well, there's only like a few people that are showing the face. But those are the people that I'm looking at. Those are the you know, I'm talking to the people over here alive. So <coughs> you are the guys that are going to go on, you're the decide if we have another class or not. So we came in with a consensus, looks like we will have another class. So we'll stop over here. The reason also why I don't I stop I used to speak for a very, very this was really before I started recording, I used to speak to, uh, you know, much, you know, one class was never under an hour and a half. Like, I used to speak a lot longer, um, especially my Friday nights classes, but I've had people that came over to me and they they were right, where they told me that sometimes it's better to say less than say more because people need to have time to process the information. Sometimes you have a two-hour class or a three-hour class or even an hour and a half class and it becomes too... I don't know, like, there's too much information and you end up leaving with, it's hard to leave with something. And the, really the focus is, and we're giving the, you know, the, you know, these, these, these types of classes, really any classes that we should change ourselves. So sometimes when we're overloaded with information, sometimes we don't, uh, you know, get, you know, to, uh, change ourselves. So, with that being said, let's do a quick recap and then we'll open up the questions. The, First thing that we spoke about was al salchamim. And how important it is to have faith, to have, an, to have a belief in the g'doylim of our generation. That when they say something, you take it to the bank. <clears throat> the second thing that we spoke about is chesed. To make sure that you do one chesed a day. The third thing that we spoke about is to make sure that you honor and you respect your spouse. The third thing that we spoke about is to make sure you spend time and to give attention to your children. And the final thing that we spoke about is by regarding Kivar of to go and make sure that you respect your, respect your parents. And Bezat Hashem, take these things, try to put upon yourself just something, something. Do it, Le'Ile Nishmas, you know, Rav Chaim Kenevsky. But Bezat Hashem, will continue next week and we'll try to, hopefully, I have to stop. I have to stop. The problem is, is that I have a week. And I end up learning more and reading more stories and I keep on getting more and more information on it. So I have to really stop. The problem is that I just saw that Art School just put out another Safer about Rabbi Chaim and stories about that. So I'm going to, I don't know, maybe I should hold myself back and not buy it. I don't know. Whatever it is, the B'zal HaShem will continue with, uh, I happen to think that these um, these classes are very, very important. Not only because we give covet to the Saratara, the Gadol Adar that we had, but um, equally as important, or perhaps maybe more important, it gives us an opportunity to help us grow and change ourselves. And that really is the focus of these classes. No one's asking you to be, the, you know, Rav Chaim Kenevsky. But what we're all asking is that try to change yourself a little bit with something. And with that, we will open up to uh, questions. Okay. First question we have here is what happens... When the rabbis say different things, then how do you know which to trust? Not talking about Rav Kanievsky. Okay, so this is a little bit of a different question. So when you're asking an halachic question, you have to make sure that you ask your Rav your paisic that you always deal with. It's never a good idea to go and ask multiple sources for the same question because sometimes there are a little bit of leeways and it'll give different answers based on different ideas. The best thing that you should ask a rabbi that knows you, a rabbi that, that's, that's fluent in particularly halacha, there's some rabbis that are not, their focus is not halacha. So make sure that you have somebody who's focused on halacha if you have an halacha question. If you have an ashkafa question, okay, so that broadens your ability. But you ask one rabbi and that is the one you're supposed to stick through with if you want to ask different rabbis the only way that that should ever happen is if you ask your rabbi and then you have an opportunity to speak to a gadol that's when you go but other than that it's not good to shop around to different, uh, to different rabbis okay um, next question okay I see over here this class should have been for men and women they could have learned a lot from Ab Chaim on how he should treat his wife whoever's married send this to your husband to listen to this is going to be online but also this will be online for anybody to B'zat Hashem, God willing hopefully the, the recording came out well and it will go online at Torah anytime and other sources as well okay uh, next question we have here okay <coughs> I just saw it over here now regarding rifu Shalema for Yaakov Yisrael Ben Tamar Malka, you have a, a speedy and quick rifu Shalema okay next question can the Ralph post this as soon as possible? I'd love to listen to this again and again. Yes, Bleen Editor, I'll try to do it. I have to just edit it. Because I have the green screen, um, I, it, it takes time to edit it. Um, so it's, it usually I can't just upload it right away. It, my computer is slow, so it takes time for it to, uh, to edit it. Okay. Uh, next question. Last week I asked a question on how people are saying that it is a sign that Mashiach is coming. But wouldn't Rav Chaim can actually be worthy about being part of the generation of Mashiach? If we're supposed to believe Mashiach is coming today, why would Rav Chaim pass away just before Mashiach? Okay, so I actually remember this question, and thank you for bringing it down. I actually had it written down in my notes at the end of the class. The problem is we didn't get to the end of the class. So I have an answer. I have actually an answer regarding a little bit to, to Branch out about the Mashiach topic, but we'll save that. There's other time for next class. Hopefully, we'll have time to speak about that. But I want to answer this question regarding: you have a Guttel, you have a Tzadik, and you know if we know Mashiach is coming, then how come Rav Chaim Kenefsky wasn't part of that Gula? So the simplest answer that I could give you is that you know, we don't know the cheshbonness of HaKadosh Like, why God had to take Reb Chaim Kanievsky away from us when we so desperately needed it, when we know Mashiach is coming. Why couldn't he stay alive until Mashiach comes? This is beyond our abilities to understand. This is the cheshbonness of Shemayim. This is the, 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 the you know, it, it's, we're delving into things that we can't begin to understand. But we have to understand a few things. That when you have a tzaddik, a gadol, like this, there's a big kapara for the generation. There is a big, uh, um, and this is something that I wanted to speak about, you know, at the end of the class, but I didn't have a chance. But, you know, you see that, you know, Rav Chaim Kenevsky was Nifter. A day after the Shiva, there was a terrorist attack in Bnei Brak. There's rarely terrorist attacks in Bnei Brak. Five people passed away. Like, Rav Chaim Kenevsky had a tremendous amount of protection, which I really wanted to speak about in depth. But, like, Rav Chaim Kenevsky had a tremendous amount of Shmirah protection that he gave. And he passed away a day after I, I, don't, I don't want to get too much into it because I want to speak about it. You know, there's other time next week, but we see that there's something missing about it. And Akedat went and he took us. He took us. You know, took us away. This this amazing shemira that we had. This amazing, uh, you know, protection that we uh, that we had. <clears throat> why is it that Rav Chaim is not staying until Mashiach comes? I don't know. There's no answer that I could give you of why didn't he go and he merited. But one thing is for sure is that if HaKadosh Baruch Hu took away such a great tzaddik from our, from us, it was only for us. You know, like, you know, Reb Chaim, you know, like, was very much focused on Mashiach. He would tell people to come to Herod Yisrael, he would tell people Mashiach, you know, like, he was very, very much focused on, on you know, on the aspect of Mashiach. But perhaps... Perhaps this is, you know, in mention of, you know, Chazal, that before Mashiach comes, I believe the Gemara in Saita, the last, you know, the end of it, page 49, goes and mentions, that says that, Before Mashiach comes, we're not going to have anybody to rely on, only on HaKadosh Baruch Hu. Maybe this is a fulfillment of that. Who knows? Who knows? But the real answer is, is that we really don't know why Rabchaim couldn't stay until Mashiach comes. Next question, is emunah z'chachadim only for your rabbis or for all rabbis? So that's a good question, and there's actually layers to that question, because um, in general, emunah z'chachadim means that when you go to somebody and ask for advice, you take that advice, you take that blessing. So it's your rabbi, or it's any rabbi that you go to. Um, But if, let's say, a rabbi, uh, if a gadol goes and says something, that goes across the board. But, you know, there's a lot of different areas where different rabbanim are... On. They, 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 there's a different opinions on so that's a little bit differently but that's really when you're dealing with an halachic question but when you're dealing with brachas or things like that that goes for all rabbis okay oh, and here we go thank you thank you Leah for putting this out over here the new Rav Chaim biography um, uh, uh, you know and, and, and it's posted with the Tugudolem Rab Chaim Kaneevsky and Rav Gershon Edelstein uh, the Rashi Vapanovich okay Next question. And I would strongly recommend, I'm tempted to, to, to buy it, but I'm nervous that we're gonna, it's going to extend the next class, but uh, we'll see. Okay, next, next question. Regarding honoring parents, what can you do if your mother has a personality disorder? Okay, so this is an excellent question. And before I answer this question, I have to preface it with saying that this is something that you really need to speak personally to a rabbi, because it depends on the situation. Personality disorder is a very, very difficult disorder to live with. Uh, it's very hard for people to remain married to people with personality disorders. It's a very, very serious condition, and it's very, very difficult. With that being said, sometimes in relationships between parents and children, the right answer is to move away from home. The right answer is not to be home anymore. Sometimes it's an abusive relationship. Sometimes it's a difficult relationship. So sometimes the correct answer is not to be home. Um, I'm not saying that a person needs to get abused and say, oh, this is what, you know, keep it off of aim. No, really what needs to be done at this particular, in, in these things, is that you have to speak to a rabbi. You have to speak to a rabbi. And I've had numerous cases that came to me. And usually I even, you know, I, I, I bring in a post together with these types of cases and discussing what is the correct thing to do in these cases. And, 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 and sometimes the answer was that the children should move out. And, and sometimes it was even to cut ties with a with parent so it really depends on the situation if there is a mental disorder that is something that has to be discussed with a rabbi and it has to be uh, with a competent you know halachic authority and to be um, you know delve into each each particular case okay next question I know this is probably a little bit of a sensitive topic, but I was visiting the oil yesterday, I'm not Lubavitch, and everyone was ripping up their letters over the caver. Are you allowed to send a letter asking a rabbi for a bracha or for guidance after he passed away? Okay, so just a little bit of a background. So if anybody goes to the Lubavitch rabbi's caver out in Queens, um, what was it, exit 22, if I'm not so, you 21, know, on the belt, there is a custom where <clears throat> there is, you know, you write your bakashos, and you go to, a, you know, there, and you read your Bakashas, and then you rip it up. The I- idea of ripping it up is that Haggadosh Brahu is going to answer your Bakashas, and therefore, you know, one of the things that you rip it up. But, <coughs> when you go over to Davin at a caver, it is very important that you realize the idea behind it. So, the idea behind it is that we are never, ever, 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 ever davening to the Gadol, to the Rebbe, to the, anything else. We're not davening because that's, that's borderlining Avodah Zarah. We're davening to HaKadosh Baruch Hu in the merit of the Rebbe, the Rabbi, the Gadol. And in that merit of the Gadol, please HaKadosh Baruch Hu answer us. And I was actually speaking about this to my brother, Laura, before I have actually a few days ago. And <clears throat> there's another aspect as well, it was, is that, that you go and... You don't daven to the gadol that's sitting in front of you, but you're asking the gadol to daven to akadish barhu on your behalf. So you're utilizing that that aspect. So we're never ever davening to the deceased. We're davening to Akedush Baruch Hu, but it's either we're davening to Akedush Baruch Hu in the merit of the tzaddik, or we're asking the tzaddik to daven our behalf to Akedush Baruch Hu, to go in front of Kisei Hakavod and, and plead on our behalf. So that is the aspect of writing it down and then, you know, going and, uh, and, and ripping it up. That is a custom that they do do. It is, it's interesting, I heard that the first letter of each of the following words spelled out Mashiach, Maran Shmaya, Yasef Chaim. That's interesting, I never saw, I never saw that, uh, heard that before. But obviously, you know, the Gadol passed away, so he's not uh, Mashiach. Maybe he was, you know, if we were a Zaycheteh, but at this point he's not. What about when you're a Baal Tshuva and the only religious ones in the family, and okay hold on a second. What about when you are a Tshuva and the only religious one in the family at this time? I don't I'm sorry I don't understand the question. So if you could uh, explain that. Okay, next question. If a married <coughs> and mom has a personality disorder and as much as I want to respect her it's hard. It is a very difficult, it is a very difficult assignment. It really is. I would recommend to speak to a rabbi to consult to figure out how to deal with it. Because sometimes people put themselves in a situation where they don't need to and it causes them more harm there's people that will be like okay fine I have to respect my mother and then the end they go and they try to respect my mother and then they have to go to therapy to, you know, to fix it up to whatever the damage was so again it's something that you really have to speak it's something that we you, know, that you don't have to speak to me there's some sort of rabbi that take it offline really and dealing in particular things because sometimes it is necessary to step away and sometimes it's not so it depends on the situation next question Regarding honoring parents, what if a child is being fostered and not fully adopted? That the child has obligation to honor their foster parents. So that's a good question. I don't know where that falls into obligation of kibbidava aim, but that definitely falls under the obligation of, of karasatov. Ha karasatov. You know, they're, they're taking care of you. So there's definitely, uh, they're paying for your bills. They're putting a roof over your shoulder. That's definitely something that should be given covenant and honor. 100%. 100%. Um, Okay, what about Igra? When Chabad say to get an answer from the Rebbe, you need to say, okay, I'm sorry, that is cut off, or I don't follow that question fully, or maybe I don't understand that aspect fully regarding the uh, Chabad custom. If you could please, uh, you know, just post it back in. Okay, next question. Why is it only borderline Avodah Zarah if a Messianic Jew or Lababich prays to the righteous Rebbe? Isn't it the same as Christians that use Yashka as a messenger to their prayer? Okay, yes. So let's, okay, let's try to, to, to delve on this not too long. Because there is a lot to speak about it <coughs> but if somebody goes and prays to something else under the Nikodish Baruch, then yes, that is problematic and that is um, you know borderline of are. Why do I say borderline of Odazar and not of Odhazar? Is because first of all, <coughs> nowadays, from my understanding, there's you know, even in the Chabad, you know, sect I don't believe there's a large group, if any, that actually pray to the rabbi or do anything like that. There was, it was a little bit of an issue at one point. I believe it was resolved to a majority of point. But <clears throat> the idea behind davening to somebody, there's a fine line where you daven to somebody and you say, you help me, versus, versus you ask the deceased to pray on your behalf. So there's a little bit of a fine line and I believe that's really where the focus was, that they were davening, to ask the rabbit to daven on their behalf. And that's where my focus on the borderline was. Okay, next question. <clears throat> I heard two classes this week. I'm Sephardic. One Sephardic rabbi said, if you live in an apartment building with both Jews and non-Jews living there, you cannot use the hot water directly from the force of the other Sephardic rabbi says you can. What is the halacha? What is the halacha? Is it different for various groups? Okay, so this I don't even want to begin to delve, with, delve in, but... This is, this is, you know, a big problem. I would say to reach out to a Posek regarding this question. As far as a POSIC, to go and, uh, you know, and to, and to delve in this, uh, you know, regarding this. Uh, majority of the people will say not to use, uh, the hot water, but go and, and speak to a Posek. Because when you have two different rabbis say different, two different things and you already ask them, the best is to go to speak to a Posek and that will give you the final answer. And that's what you listen to. Okay, (laughs) you should do an ask the rabbi session. Yeah, sometimes it's funny because sometimes you know every class at the end of every class I like to open up to Q and A. Some classes we have a lot of questions, some classes we have no no questions. So I don't know, you know, to each uh, every class is uh, is is different. Okay, next question. What about okay? Again, we have here when Chabad say to get answered the rabbi, you need to say something like King Mashiach. Okay, (laughs) I see we're delving into the Chabad world. So I am uh, not a fan of the whole um, aspect of, you know, the aspect of Rebbe and Mashiach. And, you know, when people go and they say, you know, I'm never going to mention it, whatever a certain line that they say regarding the Rebbe was Mashiach, I, that is not you don't need to get answered from the Rebbe to say you know the, the Lubavitch Rebbe was a very very holy man there is nothing that's uh, associated that if you want to get an answered for him you have to say that he's Mashiach he's not Mashiach I'm not going to get into that there is, the fact that people think that they say that the Rebbe's Mashiach is Kfirah it's not Kfirah um, you know the, it, it's not something that, that's Kfirah however it's not the general way that we understand that we uh, uh, um, you know the Doilem and the Rabbis go and Pasken regarding what well, I shouldn't say possible, but what the rabbis generally, uh, you know, agree upon, the Mashiach is going to be alive, but it's not considered the aspect of kefirah. But nonetheless, you don't. If you want to go, the Rebbe was a huge tzaddik, the Lababach Rebbe, Reb Menach Mendel Schneerson. You want to go and you daven by his kever. It's a huge thing. Daven by his kever. It's a, you don't have to say melacha, you know, a Mashiach or anything along those lines to get answered. You just daven in America, the merit of the schuss of the tzaddik. Okay, what does it mean, an orphan generation? An orphan generation. Uh, one of the interpretations of it is, is that we are without leaders of uh, you know of the great that we had. Obviously, we have gedolim and we have huge, huge Tzadikim rabbis, but you know, in the aspect of rav chaim, that we're orf- orphaned. and we don't have that anymore. Okay, next. Question, why is it different to go to a beach where people are dressed inappropriately as opposed to going to a pool with your friends who are all dressed the same way, example, can Okay, so the difference is, very quickly, the difference is that when you're going to a place where, where let's say it's a bunch of Jews or it's a bunch of women, are dressed exactly the same, it's not so much of a problem. But when you're dressed with... Goyim, and meaning that there are men and women, and the women are dressed a certain way, and they behave a certain way, and they act a certain way, that has a reflection on your, you know, you see it, and, and, and subconsciously, this is something that you... Um, you know, it it sticks in you. Like people that watch movies, or watch TV, uh, or or listen to all these gossip, and, or, you know, look at all these movie stars and how they dress and how they wear and how they walk and how they talk and all these things. It affects you. It, whether you like it or not, it affects you and how they, you know, interact. So if it's a bunch of girls and it's, it, you know, it's, it's in a closed place and it's a, in a modest environment, then it's no problem to do whatever it is that you're doing. Because... Everything is done in a kosher aspect. But once you're dealing with men and women and things like that, it becomes, it becomes problematic. It becomes problematic. Okay. <clears throat> there really is a lot to discuss about that, but let's, let's try to uh, um, wrap it up. Okay. Okay, Baal Tshuva question is about Can a deceased rabbi still pray? Okay, so I don't understand the first part of the question, but the second part of the question is, let's say somebody who passed away. Can they still go and pray? Yes, yeah, so uh, 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 somebody who passed away is able to go and ask a Baruch Hu on your behalf. Uh, this is an aspect of something called a Melitz Yosher. So we ask when someone passed away that they should be a Melitz Yosher. What's a Melitz Yosher? Somebody that goes and on the behalf and tries to go and, and, and bring good or something like that for his descendants, children or people that do chesed you know, on his behalf okay, next question you're referring to using water on Chavez yes, I believe that, what was the question, final question we have here what if you take on Chumras that your parents don't understand slash agree with, do you stick to it or you rather listen to your parents which is a Dero so this question depends it depends if you're dealing with something that is a minug, a custom. But generally, if you want to go to the and you want to do take upon something upon yourself, and you're old enough to take upon something of yourself, meaning that you're not a teenager anymore, you're older, you want to take upon something on yourself, and your parents say, why are you doing this, what not? You should listen to your parents in order to understand what it is because they know you better than most likely you know yourself. But there's nothing wrong with going extra and being more machmer than your parents were. Even if your parents say, ah, what are you doing with this nonsense? You don't have to deal with this. This is This is extra. There's nothing wrong with taking upon yourself extra if you are on that level. Okay. But again, it really depends on... I really should, should mention this, that it depends on what you're dealing with. So if you have a particular question, we could ask, you could ask it offline and, and we could delve in it uh, you know, more on a, a direct uh, question. Okay, how could somebody honor abusive parents? That is a good question and that depends on the situation. Sometimes the, the, really what needs to be done is, is not to honor, uh, I shouldn't say not to honor, but to stay away from abusive parents, but that's something that you have to speak with a rabbi uh, and, and it's a case-by-case situation. Okay, I don't know a I don't know a Do you have a name? Yes, I will tell you to reach out to Rabbi Tahan, and if you don't have an a way of reaching out to him, please reach out to me, and I will give you the contact information. I hope he doesn't mind me mentioning it, or you know that you could go and reach out to him. Again, I'm going to put, and this is only that I do this on the Zoom classes. I put my cell phone on there. You could text me, and I could give you the contact information for, for a sparti posting Okay, uh, where are we over here? Yes. I just wanted to address the swimming situation. I understand, you know, you got to watch the atmosphere you're in. But if you Google uh, Walmart.com or just Google modest swimwear, they even have swimwear that Muslims wear, and they're like burkas, but they're uh, but it's swimwear, water resistant, you know, material. Uh, But you can get full length, and you can get skirts that go down to your ankles. You can get, there's very modest swimwear, so that doesn't address being in the atmosphere. But if you and your Jewish friend are going to go to a, you know, a private beach or something, and you want to dip your toes in the water, then there is swimwear that you and you know, available and, and affordable. You know, Shira, I thank you for mentioning that because I really should put out a shout out to. So, my brother has, um, my brother works in, you know, in clothing, and he has one of his. if Anybody is, needs to know, it's it's a it's a store in Brooklyn. It's called Basic Colors, and there's a website for it where he does sell part of his line. That he does is he sells modest swim clothing, meaning that he takes material from from bathing suits, and he makes it into, you either have a two-piece or a one-piece, where it's a full-length, you know, because you can't go swimming in your regular clothes, so this is material that's made from bathing suit material that's full-length, that's to your, that's, to you know, that's, uh, you know, modest above your, you know, I guess lower than your elbows, lower than your knees and some of them come with like a different part of shorts under the skirt. There's a bunch of different aspects you know to it so you could definitely look it up basic colors uh, in Brooklyn and you could also uh, there there is a website I'm sorry I don't know by heart you search Google basic colors and you'll find it um, and it's very interesting. That he was mentioning to me, that he says that there is a large Chris, Christian sect that also goes and buys from him. That they go, the non Jews, that they go and they also have this modesty yeah, and they buy this modest swimwear as well. It's from it's so, Aqua Modesta. What was that? Aqua Modesta. Aqua Modesta, that's something else. I don't think that's his company, but maybe that's another, uh, another company. That's the original, that's the original Jewish, uh, that's the Tasson family. Well, she, she, she was doing that for 20 years. Oh, yeah? Okay, fine. So, yeah, it could be he was doing it more. What is he doing it now? He's doing it for maybe 15 I think, he sells, I think she sells to him. Oh, really? I think he, uh, maybe, I don't know. I'm pretty sure that he um, he manufactures it himself, but maybe, maybe. Could be. But very cool, yeah, so it's it's de- there's definitely something out there that exists, and we see over here there's two options that you have um, that you could go and you know have modest uh, modest swimwear, and it becomes you know easier again, I'm not a woman, so I don't know dealing with this I, you know like swimming with these types of uh, material, but that does uh, that you know that does exist, and it is out there. okay, next, it's the nishama. Of the person that is alive in Shemayim, that's interceding on our behalf. So, okay. So there's there's different parts of a neshama. Um, uh, there is a nefesh ruach. Uh, there's 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 a nefesh ruach neshama chia yechidah. There's five parts to a neshama. So there's three parts in the body. The neshama is behind the brain, so to speak. The um, the the nefesh is in the liver, and the ruach is, is 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 like in the heart area. But the when a person passes away, the all the parts of of a person's um, soul goes up to Shemayim, but there's a small part of the nefesh of the small soul that's still in the in the grave. And again, it depends on the, in the shiva, and again, it depends you know throughout the year. And on the yurt side, it comes down on the day that they died. It comes back again. That's why people have a have a custom to go to the graveside and pray during that time because that's when the soul comes down the day that they died. So there is an aspect that their soul is partially in this world, and also really majority in, in the next world, but there is some sort of, of a connection over there that when you pray by a tzaddik that you have an ability to go and and he could ask to, to intercede on your behalf okay, next question um, oh, there we go thank you very much, we have already a link over here for basic colors, okay thank you very much um, is it Avodah zara if you donate to do mitzvahs for the levation of a soul, and based on this, they will damage mind on your behalf. No, not at all. If you go and you say, okay, fine, I'm donating, I you know, Reb Chaim can I ask you that in the schutz of this, the Reb Chaim should intercede on my behalf, that's not a problem, you know, not a problem at all. Okay. And here's the next one, aquamodessa.com, thank you, um, Elliot, for, for uh, you know, for, for putting that in there. Okay, next. Um, another basic colors, thank you, thank you. Um, yeah, basic colors, Okay. Good, good. Okay. Oh, we got... Oh, here we go. Okay, fine. Next question. About the Chumras. What if I'm a teenager? I shouldn't take on a Chumra that my parents don't agree with because my school is a lot darker than my family. Am I supposed to stay at level of my family? Rather... No. That's a good question. It depends on what you're taking upon yourself. There is no re- there's, no, there's no requirement that you have to stay on your level of your family. Some people, the family is modern orthodox, and they are much firmer. There's no reason that you have to stay in that level, but it depends on what you're taking on. Majority of the cases, you are able to take on the khumras, but again, it depends on what it is. I was speaking about very obscure, like, like, like minhagim and things like that. But regular khumras sometimes are not khumras. Sometimes they're not stringencies. They're, they're, they're just actual halacha uh, that the family doesn't take care of, and obviously you have required to do. It. So again, this question is best to be asked in particular, as in specific, you can reach out to me or you could ask and uh, your local rabbi to go and, and guide you on him. Okay. Um, uh, next question. Oh, looks like the last question. Okay. There is... Oh, I don't know if it's a question. Okay. Um, there is a newborn baby girl with downstream for adoption. If anybody knows someone who's looking to adopt, please message me. Wow. Okay. Thank you for that. That's uh, you know that that's a huge thing. If anybody knows uh, uh, there's there's somebody up for adoption, I know people are, you know, trying to get adoption, and who knows how many you know um, long lines that they wait for. So there is that information there for whoever wants. Okay, next. Oh, we have one more. I understand that there is a concept of woman's intuition. If I meet someone, I have a bad feeling based on nothing. Should I take that into consideration, even if it will make me more likely to be less kind to them, or just? To ignore it, so that's a good question. There is there is an intuition, and if you're dating somebody, I'm assuming that's what you're referring to. But if you're dating someone and there's something that just rubs you the wrong way, I wouldn't say to be less kind to them or ignore uh, you know or ignore them, but don't ignore that intuition. Think you know like put it in the back seat and see if it actually comes into any fruition. If there's anything that comes into it that makes it. Realistic that you should look into it. Sometimes it's nothing, and sometimes it may be something. So it's it's not something I would say just to ignore it, but it's not something that I would say that you should base your entire life decision on it. But okay, looks like that was the last and final question. I want to thank you all for joining. I want to also thank you all for putting in your votes, for putting another class. we will do another class on our, you uh, know, our Prime Konevsky, you know, next week. And uh, I really want to do something on, on, uh, on Pesach, but the truth of the matter is, is that, you know, when a person's nifter, there's a lot that we need to tap in. And possibly, just possibly, this may be more important. Who am I to say? But maybe, maybe this is is something that is important. So, Bezal Hashem, we will continue with this next week. Thank you all for joining. Have an amazing, amazing Shabbos and have an amazing week until next week. Have a great night. You've just experienced another Torah class brought to you by TorahAnyTime.com.